You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So today is part two in our Halloween series. Uh, I guess we're calling it Spooky Stories. It sounds like an appropriate title, I guess. Uh, but today we're talking about the intersection of horror and religion. And uh, Brandon Graffius, uh, an author of the book Lurking Under the Surface, puts it this way. I thought this was really, really good. Horror can be a valuable conversation partner for the spiritual questions that animate so many of us, whether through a movie, television, sh television show, novel, or even myth. Horror as a genre has always spoken to our deepest human fears and anxieties, the fear of death, the fear of the unknown, the fear of knowing too much. Whether you're looking at a classic narrative like Frankenstein, which shows us the consequences of stretching knowledge farther than it's safe to go, or contemporary films like Get Out, which explores racism and white guilt, horror provides a window into our culture and what makes us human. Uh, I want to also mention, anybody watch that, uh, that series on Netflix, Midnight Mass? Uh, I think it came out last year. Yeah, super good. But it explores the horror of religious fundamentalism. That's another good example. Um, horror provides a window into our culture and what makes us human. The same can be said of religion. People's hopes and fears are often expressed in their religion and written down in their sacred books. Both horror and religion wrestle with the nature of life, our place in the universe, and what it means to be human end quote. I'd go further than Graphius and say that I think horror and religion both attempt to provide catharsis, meaning a kind of psychological relief by helping us face our deepest and most haunting fears. I think like religion, horror tries to answer our most troubling questions, like how do we cope with suffering? How do we cope with death? How do we cope with the fear of death? The fear of death is perhaps worse than death itself, yes? How do we cope with the fear of death and non-existence? Is there a higher purpose, a higher meaning to our existence? Or are we just animals at the end of the day? Driven by pure instinct, slaves to our desires? Are we just soulless, predatory animals? I think horror is often addressing those questions with the alien, the monster is often a personification of our animal si animalistic side. And I think religion is preoccupied with these questions as well. Uh, and in both of these genres or traditions, both religion and horror, our deepest fears and antagonisms are often personified in the form of a demon, a monster, an alien, or simply the grotesque itself. In the Gospels, Jesus' ability to cast out demons is directly tied to his ability to deliver and liberate his people from all kinds of oppression, not just spiritual and supernatural, but social, economic, and political. It's all wrapped up together. In the book of Revelation, Rome is personified in the form of a sea monster that, with seven heads. 
heads and ten horns, this grotesque creature that rises up out of the ocean and challenges the, the life of those living on, you know, the ground, I guess. But throughout the book of Revelation, you have these demons, these monsters, these beasts personified. But it's Rome, it's the emperor, it's the Roman imperial cult. Similarly, in horror, the demon or the ghost that haunts someone's home is really often a personification of their unhealed trauma. And it's only when that trauma, only when that trauma is, is faced and properly dealt with and addressed, can the evil entity be exercised or expelled. Again, these are the ways that both horror and religion wrestle with our deepest fears and terrors, the things that keep us awake at night. So I want to explore these, these intersections here today between religion and horror. And I know a lot of you like horror <laughs> and a lot of you like religion too, apparently. God bless you. And particularly, particularly the intersection between Christianity and horror. I want to explore particularly the intersection between Christianity and horror, because of course, that's our context here. Conservatives and fundamentalists would, of course, balk at this idea that Christianity and horror have any relationship. They see horror as antithetical to all things biblical and Christian, godly, and true. And I should know, because like many of you, I grew up evangelical, conservative Christian, slash fundamentalist, right? If you grew up that way, you probably re remember, as I do, being told, never watch a horror film because <laughs> you could become demon-possessed simply by watching it. Have you heard that before? Right now, uh, I think Hocus Pocus 2 is out, and um, I've seen memes on Facebook of people marking themselves safe from not being demon-possessed by watching Hocus Pocus 2, or that their house hasn't become haunted as a result of watching it there. I mean, this is stuff I was taught by my father and both my parents. Harry Potter, you know, you, you will invite evil spirits in the house if you watch Harry Potter, right? Um, and yet, ironically, I think conservatives and fundamentalists secretly love the horror genre. I think they secretly love it because they seem to employ it all the time as an evangelism tool. I'm talking about the classic fire and brimstone sermon where people are terrified into conversion with threats of everlasting hellfire. I grew up hearing these sermons all the time. I even played Satan once in a church play, and I have a photo of that here. This is from 20 years ago. I think I've shown it before. There I am. It's pretty impressive, right? That's uh, 20 years ago. I was part of a, uh, this was a summer revival service. My church often did summer revival services, and it was at a Methodist campground in Chicagoland, which was this Methodist campground that was historically for revival services. Anyway, that's not really important. The point is, I was part of this play called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Anybody ever seen that play, right? It's, a, it's a, an evangelism tool, yes, and I played Satan, Emily. We had just started dating. She attended the play and say, said it was utterly terrifying. <laughs> um, apparently, I was really good. Um, but uh, yeah, so I played Satan in the play. And of course, at the end of which, there was an altar call, right? But the genre of the play was horror. It would never have been acknowledged as that, right? But it was horror. And uh, so I've got a lot of personal experience here. <laughs> um, 
I'm reminded also of the 1970s film, A Thief in the Night. Anybody ever remember A Thief in the Night? It was actually a series of three films. Uh, I forget the other titles. The, a Thief in the Night was the most popular. And churches, evangelical churches, were encouraged to show these in their sanctuaries. And you were encouraged to you know, invite your friends to church to literally scare the hell out of them right? To literally scare the hell out of them. Because the idea was they'd watch the movie and be so gripped with fear about missing the rapture and, and having to endure all the violence, death, and destruction that God was going to unleash during the seven years of tribulation after the rapture. This gets into evangelical eschatology, premillennialism. We won't get into that. But the idea of the film was to literally horrify people into the kingdom of God, right? This is horror. We never would have called it that. But let's be honest, evangelicals secretly love horror. Uh, they love horror as long as they're the ones doing the horrifying, <laughs> or God is the one doing the horrifying. This time of year, many churches refuse to have Halloween parties, right? I grew up in a church that had hallelujah parties, um, which was like a carnival-esque thing, but you ended up getting candy, so who cared, you know? Um, but they build, um, instead of Halloween, uh, instead of having Halloween parties, they'll have hallelujah parties, or they'll do something else and build what's called um, a hell house. Have you seen this before? Which is essentially a haunted house built in like the sanctuary or in the fellowship hall. And you walk through it like you would a haunted house. But of course, it's made out to be like hell. <laughs> and it's meant to bring, and again, you invite your friends to this. And it literally is supposed to scare the hell out of them and get them into the church and get them saved, right? to be scared into Christianity. There's nothing new about any of this. We, we, we think that this is all a recent evangelical preoccupation, but it, this is actually quite old, this relationship of Christianity to horror. Jonathan Edwards, the famous Puritan preacher from the 18th, let's think about this, 1700s, 18th century, right? His famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Right? He was part of the first great awakening in the 13 colonies, this religious revivalism that swept through the early American colonies. That And other preachers were preaching these fire and brimstone sermons like he was, these circuit riders going from church to church and stirring entire congregations into frenzies. It said that Jonathan Edwards was perhaps the best at it. Sometimes when he was preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God, people would scream out. Weep and wail in the middle of his sermons, throw themselves on the ground and beg God to deliver them. Because the graphic imagery he would use in his sermons to depict hell and everlasting torment would just torment people <laughs> sitting there in the pews. This is horror. Christians secretly, evangelicals secretly love horror. This is the relationship between horror and religion, even in our own tradition. So again, you know, um, and, and to be clear, I don't, I have a problem, of course, <laughs> with the way they use it, but there's actually a helpful and healthy way of looking at religion through the lens of horror or reading the Bible, parts of the Bible, I should say, through the lens of horror. And I want to explore that today. And we'll explore it um, next week or the week following by looking at the book of Job too. Because uh, that's a piece of what I would say, or what Leland Merritt says, and he's listening in today. Hi, Leland. What he calls cosmic horror. So we'll talk about that too in a week or two. But I would argue that the passion narrative, the story, 
Jesus's gory and brutal crucifixion should be read and should be, I think, was originally understood, if you will, as a kind of proto-horror literature, where his Jewish followers, where Jesus's Jewish followers confront the unthinkable, the truly monstrous, the truly terrifying, that the God of their ancestors has in fact abandoned them or does not exist at all or is not who they thought he was. And all this has to do with the despair and the crisis the Roman occupation caused in first century Palestine. It's hard for us to imagine, but try. It's hard for us to imagine just how devastating the Roman occupation was for first century first century Jews, and their conception of God and what it meant to be his people. Keep in mind that Israel always counted on God to liberate them from foreign oppression. The Torah, the Hebrew scriptures are basically story after story of God delivering Israel from enemies like the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Seleucids. Israel expected God to deliver them from the Romans too, understandably so. And there's a lot of evidence in the Gospels that Jesus' followers believed, his closest of disciples even, believed that he was sent by God for just that purpose. To be Judas Maccabeus 2.0, to be Moses 2.0, to liberate God's people, to inaugurate a new exodus, but this one from the Romans, that he might launch an armed insurrection, that he might call down a legion of angels and wipe these nasty Romans off the face of the earth and establish Israel once again. And yet not only, not only did he disappoint them, and that's to put it mildly, not only did he not liberate them from the Romans, but he's actually arrested and executed by them himself in the most humiliating way possible, crucifixion. This God, this liberator, this incarnate incarnation of Israel's God of the Exodus is arrested and crucified. The ultimate humiliation, the ultimate defeat, the ultimate disappointment, which translated into the ultimate theological crisis. Thus, Jesus's words from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, should be, prop should be understood. As Israel's words, the words of the nation, the nation's cry and dis of despair and the nation's cry of horror at the felt absence of God, their sense of being abandoned by God. Jesus' death represented in no small way the death of the God they thought they knew. The death of a particular theology, the death of a particular worldview, the death of a particular hermeneutic means how they read the scriptures. Does all this sound like deconstruction? Yes? Good, it should. 
Think of it this way. In the same way that Jewish atheism today is largely a response, a theological response to the Holocaust, the Shoah, so the passion narrative in the Gospels is in no small way a theological response to the utter despair brought on by the Roman occupation. The two events, the Roman occupation of first century Palestine and the Shoah, while separated by 2,000 years, evoked similar theological response, responses in the Jewish community of their day. A sense of God's absence and God's abandonment, a sense of God's death, even, or God's non-existence. Or at least the sense that God is not who they thought he was. I don't think there's any question that this was the mindset for many, not all, but many first century Jewish Christians. Remember the first Christians, the first followers of Jesus were all Jews. I'm not saying they imagined or made up the passion narrative. Don't miss hear me this morning. I'm not saying they made it up, the story of Jesus and his death. Because I think Jesus of Nazareth was probably a real person. I'm not a mythicist in this regard. And I think he was probably an important person whose profound teachings and his advoc advocacy for the poor and the powerless landed him in hot water with the powers that be. And I believe his crucifixion, while also probably a historical event, but I believe like many heroes of history, a kind of legend, a kind of mythology grew up around him and took on a life of its own. And that's, that's okay. That's wonderful, actually. I think his story came to represent the story of first century Israel itself. Their sorrow, their despair, their sufferings, their, their crucifixions. Crucifixion was not a unique occurrence back then. Thousands upon thousands of people were crucified in Israel. His story represents their story, their sorrow, their sufferings, their despair, their death of God, the God they thought they knew. The Gospels, of, of course, invoke this very idea that Jesus somehow embodied the sufferings of the nation. The Gospels quote the prophet Isaiah with regards to Jesus. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sorrows, bore our sufferings. Isaiah 53. The Gospels quote Isaiah in order to place Jesus within what's known as the suffering servant tradition. It's an important thing to know, the suffering servant tradition. It's found throughout the book of Isaiah, but in other places in the Hebrew tradition, in, in Hebrew literature, but particularly in the book of Isaiah, which is quoted a lot in the Gospels. But this suffering servant in the Hebrew tradition embodied the people's pain, embodied the people's suffering and sorrow and all of that. Jesus becomes a kind of scapegoat for their trauma, their transgressions, and their terror. The gospel writers, of course, make Jesus out to be the ultimate suffering servant, the ultimate embodiment of the nation's sufferings under the Roman occupation. The end result of this was a kind of deconstruction we would call it that. Jesus' death represents in no small way the death of the God 
they thought they knew. The death of, of a particular theology, hermeneutic and worldview, all of that. This is why Jesus' Jewish followers gave up the so-called eternal right of circumcision. Not to mention many of their other sacred rites and practices like keeping kosher, Sabbath observance, temple sacrifices. I mean, you want to talk about a deconstruction. You want to talk about, you know, being seen as an apostate and heretic. Try being a first century Jew who gives up the so-called eternal right of circumcision or says it's now been spiritualized into simply living a life of love and justice and following this radical rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth. They gave it all up. Their the religion was entirely deconstructed in the, in the death of that God, the death of the God of religious law, the death of the God of the temple. The temple curtain was torn. The nation was torn. Their understanding of God was ripped asunder, never to be returned the same again. It was all brought on by the cataclysm events the cataclysmic events of the Roman occupation and the eventual fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple itself by Titus, the Roman general in 70 CE. All of this brought on a profound theological crisis and the need to reimagine God and what it meant to be his people. And Christianity and the early church was the direct result of all of that. What does this mean for us? Well, I think it means that as Christians, we are people who reimagine God after the death of God. I think that's a big part of what it means to be a Christian. We are people who reimagine God after the death of God. We are people who take seriously the inadequacy of certain conceptions of God to meet moments in history. The question, of course, becomes what conceptions of God now are obsolete and are not meeting this moment in history that no longer work, that are oppressive. These are the kinds of questions that we should be preoccupied with. But these are our roots and our constant calling to reimagine God to continually ask ourselves in what ways is our current conception, our current conception of God inadequate to meet this moment. This is what I think it means to read the passion narrative as a kind of proto-horror literature. And yeah, that's scary. Deconstruction, it's terrifying, yes? The sense of the, the abandonment of God or the losing the God of your upbringing? The God of your family? Your church? What's more horrifying? But it's also really freeing. It's also, this is also a story of healing and liberation. The cross is both horrifying and healing. I like to think of it being like the horror film, The Sixth Sense that came out like 20 years ago with, you know, with Bruce Willis and uh, I guess, is that Haley Joel Osmond? Haley plays a little boy named Cole with the terrifying ability to see ghosts. At first, his ability only terrifies and tortures him. But in the end, he sees that it's actually a gift 
because it turns out these spirits he's seeing are just people who don't know they're dead yet. Spoiler alert, I should probably say. And by helping them realize this, by helping these ghosts realize that they're dead, he's able to help them move on into the afterlife. And so Cole discovers that his sixth sense is both a blessing and a curse. It's a curse because it's utterly terrifying. But it's also a blessing because he's helping people make peace with reality, make peace with their death, and get on with their lives, or their afterlives in this case. Like Cole, we too must embrace our ghosts, so to speak, which are the doubts that haunt us, the sense of absurdity and meaninglessness that is innate to life in the world, the sense that God is not who we thought he was and we're not sure what we believe anymore. These are the ghosts that haunt us maybe and keep us awake at night. Deconstruction, all of it. Are we not haunted? We should not avoid these ghosts. Let them speak. Make peace with them and discover that they're actually there to help us grow and to find a deeper and more enriching connection to life, to ourselves, and to each other. Like Cole's sixth sense, the cross is both a blessing and a curse. The cross is a curse in the sense that it's an apt metaphor for the innate injustice and the utter cruelty of the world, the horror of the world. And the fact that we cannot count on God to deliver us from our Romans, that God is crucified. No one is coming to save the day. We must save the day. We must be the body of God, the body of Christ now. The presence and power of the Lord. But that's kind of scary to say all that. It's kind of sad. It's the horror of it the horror of the cross. But the cross is also a blessing because it's only by sharing in Christ's sufferings. It's only by picking up our cross and following him, which I take as a metaphor for picking up and carrying the burden of being, the burden of life in the real world, the burden of reality. It's only by carrying such a cross that we find newness of life. It's like James Baldwin's famous words. We are capable of bearing a great burden once we realize that burden is reality and arrive at where reality is. We are capable of bearing a great burden once we realize that burden is reality and arrive at where reality is. But unfortunately, the church teaches us not to bear the burden of reality, to escape reality to escape into superstition and religion. But the cross calls us to reality, to the death of God, to the crucified God, to the suffering God, to the weak and powerless God, to the God who stands in solidarity with all the weak and the powerless in the world and calls us to be God in the world for each other calls us to make God real through acts of love and justice and compassion. By doing so, we find a deeper kind of serenity, I think. I really do. 
I think we find the hope and the meaning and the serenity we so want, but it comes at a price. As we shift towards communion, I want us to consider how this sacrament embodies and illustrates this intersection between horror and religion, perhaps better than any other. Here we find Jesus's corpse. Yes. Here we find the broken body and the shed blood of a man named Jesus of Nazareth, who told us, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. I mean, this is kind of macabre. This is my body. This is my blood. Take, eat. <laughs> I'm immediately thoughts of zombies and vampires <laughs> come into my mind here. Yes? We don't think of it often like this. It's just a tradition. It's been around for 2,000 years. We just do it. We don't think about kind of the macabre nature of this tradition that Jesus himself established. It is a confrontation with the horror of death. I don't say this to be vacuously provocative or crass. But to say that this most ancient of Christian traditions is another way that we confront the fear of death and suffering and the frailty of our lives. And here's the good news God's solidarity with us in that, and our solidarity with each other. This to me is part of the meaning of this tradition. It's not the only meaning, but it's a big part of it for me. Let us meditate on that now as we receive the Lord's Supper together. And if you're new, uh, you're invited to just come forward in a moment and take one of these cups of grape juice and a gluten-free cracker, and you go back to your seat and you receive it when you're ready as Max leads us in song. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Thanks, Max. So questions, comments, remarks, anything goes regarding religion and horror. Um, maybe movie recommendations, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I also am curious about hearing um, if anybody wants to share, I don't know, their experiences in the church growing up around Halloween. Those are fun stories. Um, but yeah, questions, comments, remarks about religion and horror, the death of God, um, any of that. So very, very much a sermon on radical theology today, for those of you familiar with the tradition. Yeah, Jen. And um, Max, would you um, mind with the microphone? I, thank you, sir. No, you're good. So you said the same thing last week, and I kind of disagreed with it then. And then you said it again this week. What was that? Please. <laughs> um, that deconstruction is horrible and that wow. and that losing the church of your, you know, youth and stuff is horrible. And maybe it is horrible for some people. 
um, in that beginning. I think eventually though, it's amazing and liberating and freeing. And I think what's truly horrible when you detach from that upbringing or that toxic church is the reaction of the people that you love. That's what's horrible because that that's what's painful. And that's what continues to hurt you when you're like, no, you know, and they don't understand or don't accept that. Um, and another thing that's horrible about kind of leaving church or deconstruction is when you realize how ill-equipped you are for life, <laughs> like you haven't been in the real world, you haven't been equipped necessarily to make good decisions about who you hang out with or who you love or what you do because you were brought up in this, you know, fake world of superstition and magic. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I appreciate it. And um, yeah, I, I hope you, I, I completely agree with you, <laughs> you know, and, and I hope people understand that when I say that, deconstruction can be horrible that's those are the things i'm talking about and i you know i'm talking about the sense of grief sometimes that does come with deconstruction there is a sense of loss and that, that sense of wandering in the wilderness and not sure what you believe anymore and i think a lot of people experience that as grief and loss and, but you're in general my experience of deconstruction is like yours where it's, it was free it was liberating it was exciting and it still is um and it's kind of what inspires me to you know, keep doing this and why I find this community inspiring and hopeful. It's, it's kind of fed by the deconstruction and the reconstruction, we would say. But deconstruction is inherently reconstructive in my book. But everything you said is correct. Yeah. But other other people's thoughts. Emily, yeah. Um, I think for me, the only part that was horrible was um, losing that certainty that you felt about like the afterlife for example like before when you were able to be like i know that this is going to happen i know and it was like all of a sudden now i find myself often being like i don't know i don't know what's gonna happen I don't or know. like my child will ask like what was like she's been asking lately like what happens when they die and i'm kind of like i don't know <laughs> and that part is kind of terrifying especially like when you know, like, I feel like for me now that I have someone that like, you know, it would be devastating for me to like, never see them again. And that, you know, like that part is the part that's really horrible, um, is that uncertainty of the future. Um, but I don't, and I also don't, I don't know if I missed it because I came in late, but, um, one, how, how dare you? Yeah. Well, your child is having some real trouble getting ready in the morning. <laughs> um, yes. So um, legit excuse. she's a real challenge to get ready myself with her running around. Um, so Aaron will often talk about, talk about his upbringing, like his dad and, and talking about like the spirits that, um, you know, everything had a, had an evil spirit basically like from the TV, from like, if you had like a, um, you know, stomach bug, like it was like literally like a demon inside of you. And he would come and like pray the spirit out of you. And Aaron will always joke, he's like, who needed Halloween when we had Don Van Voris to scare the shit out of us? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I'm, the irony of that is for all of his interests in demons and demonology, he was, there was only one demon in the house and it was, it was all projection and it was him. You know, the devil wasn't terrifying me, it was him. 
um, the devil wasn't going to traumatize us as kids. That's really sad as well, right? But that's kind of, you know, for churches that talk about demons and, and evil spirits and fire and brimstone, um, the pastor in that case is the demon, right? And uh, the personification of all that. But anyway, yeah, good stuff. Um, yeah, Tom, Em, would you mind? I was just thinking about the horrifying element of, so moving from, I guess the word horrible to horrifying of, we've been watching a lot of horror movies too, but the moment when the protagonist recognizes the lengths that they must go to, to be well. And that's where there's, that's where the scream happens. That's where the horrifying part comes into focus and you've got a person in a hockey mask with a knife and now you realize what where you have to go within yourself what you have to do things that you never thought you would do and i think about that in leaving the church and losing faith is i'm going to have to identify with people that i've always thought of as the enemy in fact that i've very badly mistreated and I'm going to have to someday be open and honest with people that have always said that they were going to love me unconditionally. And I'm going to have to find out that that's not the case. And even to the recognition of here's the safe decisions that I've been making, I'm going to have to actually start taking some risks. I'm actually going to have to start living life the way that I want to and doing the very scary work of figuring out what that is. So there's that horrifying element of recognizing, oh my gosh. I've been trying to believe that life or whatever situation isn't as scary. No, it's not the boogeyman. You just saw a shadow. And then you're face to face with the boogeyman and recognizing, oh, I have to actually do something that I never thought I was going to have to do before. Yeah, good stuff. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yes, back row. I don't know you, but welcome. Yeah, uh, Desiree, hold on a second. We uh, want to make sure you get a mic if you're comfortable with that, because there's people joining us via Zoom that can hear you that way. Well, what's your name? Welcome. I'm Olivia. Hi, I actually Olivia. used to work with May Linton back in 2018. So. Oh, you used to work with May? Yeah. Oh, and you used to work here? Yeah. Oh, welcome back. Sorry, hey. good to see you. So I guess what I've been struggling with lately and what's been horrifying is expectations like... Um, just the trendiness of like, you know, you need to cut people off. You know, I don't like cutting people out. I like to try to understand why they're acting the way they are. Like I've, I don't like to say, you know what, you're out of my life. I want to be like, no, why, why are you the way you are? Like what's causing you to treat me this way? Can I help you? You know? And then just there's that scariness where people are just like, no, you can't, you can't do that. Just let them go. Let them go forever. And I'm just like, I well, okay. And then those ghosts live on, as you say, like, and then, yeah, you want the ghost to go away, but then they, it's like when you don't want to think about something, it's that much louder. You know, when you try, it's like my therapist says, like, when you try to suppress emotions, it's like holding a beach ball underwater. It's just going to shoot up that much stronger. And what's scary for me is that, yeah, just these, these teachings that I hear everywhere is like, people are toxic and isolate yourself. And I'm just like, well, I don't like being isolated either. That's scary. 
I don't like being like, no, this is my journey. I must go it alone. Like, leave me alone. Kind of, I'm tired of being alone. I, I want to engage with people. I want to, I remember back in the day you would say you're sorry and people were like, no, it's all good. Forgotten. People don't do that anymore. And that's what scares me. I can't tell you how many times I try to like mend fences and people are like, no, the, the bridge is burned. You are never going to be forgiven. Yeah. I, I just want to say thank you for sharing that. And I, I just also want to say I can hear the pain in your voice and the sense of loneliness. And it's okay. Well, I come from a Catholic background and it's like, no matter what you yeah. do, you'll never be good enough. And that's my fears. Like, that's yeah. why I left. Cause I'm like, no matter how sorry you are, you will always, you'll never measure up. And there's just a lot of people in this room that can both sympathize and empathize with what you're saying when you're coming from. I just want to say thank you for sharing that. Yeah. We need to give voice to those things. They're real. Um, yeah. I'm again. Um, I just wanted to say in response to what you were saying is um, I think that like for the most part, I agree with you in that I think there is, and one of the things that Aaron and has talked about a lot is the idea of, um, you know, trying to understand where people are coming from and, you know, especially for us, like not becoming what we are criticizing in that, like we criticize like the far right about, the extremism and the he's like well you have to be really careful to not become like the exact opposite but like the same yeah along the same spectrum just the exact opposite of beliefs in that you're really militant um i would say that like for the most part the like for example we talk about um that aaron and i particularly feel very called to um kind of mend fences with the LGBT community because of how we were raised and kind of how we used to believe and how shameful we feel about that and sorrowful that how, that we feel towards, you know, what our previous beliefs were. Um, and that I don't ever want to give up on somebody because I see like how, I mean, I think Aaron would admit that he was a little more extreme than I was in like actually ending relationships over someone who came out as gay. And, um, uh, you know, I never was like that. I was kind of the like, love the sinner, hate the sin. Um, but so I see like, you know, what we became and, you know, I think that there's hope for everybody to change beliefs but i would the, the one exception that i would say is if that you are like in that example someone who is lgbt and you're in a you know a relationship with someone that's harmful to you because of you who you are that's a good reason to kind of end the relationship and cut someone off that you get you know like i give you permission to do that because you need to be able to keep yourself safe in that situation um so i think that like by and large, I think that we definitely agree with the idea of keeping people, you know, giving people second and third chances and believing that people can be better and believing that they can change um, with that little asterisk of like, if you are someone who's being ostracized because of who you are, then it's okay to, to, to end that relationship and to walk away. Yeah. And, um, Frankly, um, 
being in therapy, talking to somebody about this, working through these issues. Everybody's circumstance is unique and different. And we all need um, people in our lives or frankly, therapists. <laughs> Hi, Tom, um, therapist, uh, you know, to help us work through these very complicated, difficult issues that are unique to everybody's circumstances. But yeah, good, good stuff. Anybody else today have anything they want to add or have a question? But anyways. I just. Uh, yeah, who's that? This is Leland. I'm on Zoom. Yeah, hey, Leland. Hey, uh, I just wanted to state that like um, what I, I love about horror is uh, I think it's honest. And I, I think when horror is at its most beautiful is, is when it's being honest. And I think that's also true of what I love about the Bible or religion is, um, is when it's being honest. And that is, uh, you know, horror is, is grappling with when one comes into the, I guess, this, this, this situation where they realize that the world is not what they thought it was. And um, I think you, you cover that today with, with the passion narrative that this isn't what we thought it was. And how do we react now? Because it's horrifying uh, to be disrupted. And, um, and I think, you know, we, core is constantly trying to push that and saying, this isn't what the world, you know, the, the, the world that we try to live through and get through today is just, um, you know, just to get by, we dissociate and, uh, and horror kind of brings that mirror up and says, no, it's not. And, um, and I think, you know, when we're being honest, then we can find um, power and we can find, you know, truth and we can find beauty in trying to face that horror. But um, yeah, so, and I think deconstruction is that way too, but yeah, I'll leave it at that. Hey, all right, thank you for chiming in. Well, let us close our service as we always do by saying our collective benediction together. And there it is. Let's say this now together. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning, everybody. Go in peace. Thank you.